Greetings, I'm Jean Mizutani. Welcome to today's edition of Disability Inc. Our guest today is one of New York's most influential education advocates, Leonie Hampson. Leonie is the founder and executive director of Class Size Matters, a nonprofit organization based here in New York City. She sits on the board for the Network for Public Education and is the co-chair for the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy. In addition to being the city's leading proponent of smaller classes, she's very well known for keeping the public's attention on how states and school districts collect and use student data in the internet age. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Please take this opportunity to correct my pronunciation. I know I've boggled it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. My name is Leonie Hameson. I know it's a difficult pronunciation for many people, so I don't mean to be picky, but... Not at all, and it sounds so pretty when you say it correctly. I wish I could. Let's get right to it. Most of us started using the internet long before considering privacy, and student data is no exception. What kind of data on students is collected, and what is its purpose? Well, there's a huge amount of very personal and sensitive data that is collected from students every day, some of which is shared with the state and some of it which is shared with private vendors. That includes students' names, addresses, sometimes their social security numbers, their disability status, their uh, disciplinary records, of course their grades and their test scores, and many other other um, details of their personal life which are so sensitive that we would not want them shared or breached. Um, in Race to the Top, uh, there was a big push by the federal government to expand the collection of personal data by the state and to hand it off to researchers and other private vendors to build their tools around. And so every state was basically mandated to create something called a student longitudinal database, which in different states collects different amounts of, of, of data, um, including things in many states like a child, when a child entered this country, if they're an immigrant, where they were born, uh, what their, again, what their special education status is, their disciplinary uh, data, including uh, how many times they may have been suspended or even expelled from school, and many, many other um, very sensitive data elements which really should be held very closely and protected against abuse. What year was that? Uh, Race to the Top was, was um, passed in 2010 and um, it was part of the stimulus package that mm -hmm. was supposed to um, help schools deal with the big state budget and local budget cuts due to the recession and they held out grants to many, many different um, states on many issues, and one of them was data collection. And there was a separate a set of grants specifically to help states build their, their state longitudinal databases. Before that time, uh, schools and districts might collect a lot of data on kids, data that they needed in order to you know, give them the services that they needed or just to keep track of them but the state was not uh, central in that data collection system. Also, um, 
more recently, um, there's been expansion of online services to schools, whether it be uh, simply um, keeping track of all the data that's collected, um, um, uh, offloading or outsourcing instruction, assessment, and even behavior management. So there's been a huge explosion of ed tech, and um, that has meant that a lot of this highly sensitive data is being collected directly from kids and it goes into private hands without a lot of scrutiny and care to make sure that the data is being protected. Wow. Okay, so the race to the top um, is what really kicked this off. Then in about 2013, New York State and other states decided to adopt a software program known as InBloom, which was a $100 million education technology initiative. Uh, Actually, uh, the, that happened in 2011. 2011. So the, the Board of Regents voted on a program that would essentially allow the Gates Foundation to create the state longitudinal database. Earlier, they wanted it to be done by a company called Wireless Corporation, which at that point was owned by Rupert Murdoch, who was involved in a phone hacking scandal with his papers in England. Um, <laughs> The, the state controller rejected that contract, and then the regents approved the Gates Foundation to create the data system that was also going to be built by Wireless Corporation. Wow. So they went around the decision, basically, of the state uh, controller, and they said, yes, we will participate in this project, which at that point was called the Shared Learning Collaborative. It hadn't yet been spun off into a separate corporation. But um, we caught wind of that fairly early here in New York. And at that point, um, the Gates Foundation said that it was supposed to be uh, eight, nine states and districts were supposed to participate in this data collection mm -hmm. system. There were no limits on the kind of data that might be collected. And the whole point of the, uh, uh, the um, project was to systematize the data and make it easily interoperable so it could be handed off to ed tech companies to build their tools around. Right. And um, we sounded the alarm here in New York City, and that spread through the state fairly quickly. And then it, uh, we started reaching out to parents and advocates throughout the country. And parents all over the country, even in non-in-bloom states, became very alarmed and soon became aware that there were very few legal limits on the dispersal and disclosure of this data. I had thought, and many other people who try to sort of keep track of these issues, thought that there was this federal law called FERPA, right. which uh, didn't allow schools and districts to hand off the data without the prior knowledge and consent of parents. But what we weren't aware of was that the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, had very quietly rewritten FERPA twice through re regulations, not through a change in the law by Congress, but by changing the regulations to enable and facilitate the outsourcing of student data without parental knowledge and consent. And so when we started talking about this, initially we thought, well, this can't be legal, but then we found out that it was legal. Parents throughout the country were astonished and outraged that it was legal and that there were so few protections about personal data. And so there was a very heavy pushback in all the in-bloom mm -hmm. states and districts, 
and one by one they pulled out um, of the project. In New York State, where we were probably the best organized and had started the protests and the campaign against In Bloom first, was the last state to pull out because we were the only state where it actually took a, a, a law passed by the state legislature to ban In Bloom. And that happened exactly five years ago today. So it happened in the state budget, March 31st, 2014. So we were the last state to pull out because we had the most stubborn um, <laughs> a, um, state commissioner of education, John King, um, who refused to listen to parents, refused to li listen to the state legislature, which held a number of hearings on In Bloom, uh, refused to listen to the city council, which held a hearing on In Bloom, and um, refused to listen to his own state superintendents, um, hundreds of which protested, of whom, and asked to have their district's data pulled out of the database, which he refused to do. But anyway, it was finally passed a law against In Bloom in, in New York State. And because we were the last to pull out, very shortly thereafter, In Bloom closed its doors and was defunct. And the Gates Foundation had spent more than $100 million on this project, which went down the drain. Um, but one good thing that happened because of the controversy, well, again, was that parents became activated throughout the country, realizing for the first time how widely their kids' data was being shared with private vendors and how little it was protected by federal law. So more than 100 state student privacy laws were passed since 2014, including in New York State, which not only banned in Bloom, but also created a student privacy law with additional restrictions on the use and disclosure of student data. It's a typical um, example of act now and ask for forgiveness later. I mean, it sounds like they were very ambitious and they really wanted to get this done. The race to the top money was significant, but in one year and bloom came down. Um, what replaced it? So what replaced it was what um, in New York State, which existed before in, in any in a, in form, some form or another, which was the state's own student database, which was more restricted and was housed at the state education department where it should be housed instead of in private hands. And so I had spoken to some of the BOCES directors who outside of New York City do a lot of the data collection and work for um, districts and they said there was no need for InBloom at all because we were doing what InBloom was doing except it was under our control and it was for free. Another aspect of the whole in bloom fiasco was that initially it was going to be free, but they were going to start charging districts per student fee every year for collecting and holding this data. So it was going to be a big financial drain, as well as a loss of authority for districts who didn't want that data out of their hands in the first place. Mm. Now, I've heard you say that student data is the most vulnerable data. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of vulnerable data out there, as we know. Um, student data is some of the most sensitive data because um, it includes things like healthcare data. And I mean, that you're, at the school level, they collect all sorts of intimate data about your child's um, health status and special education status. Um, which, if it were collected by your uh, physician, has additional security controls over it, for example, against, against breaches 
FERPA and the other federal laws have no security protections at all, so it can be kept in any way that is vulnerable to breaches. And we've seen increased number of breaches across the country of student data in recent years, including by hackers who have um, threatened blackmail against districts that they will release the student data unless they are given millions of dollars. It's also very, uh, very vulnerable data because um, again, it's children who should be the most protected in terms of their privacy. But also, we have discovered that because they don't have credit ratings then, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. very easy and, and uh, desirable for hackers to take that information and create false identities. So they're very vulnerable to identity theft. So for all those reasons, it's, it's extremely sensitive. It should be highly protected, probably more or equally to health data, and yet it is not. Do you think that FERPA was weakened, as you said, quietly behind the scenes, specifically to roll out the red carpet for big data collection? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Um, the federal government had us uh, and the U.S. Department of Education, both under George Bush and under uh, President Obama, um, had a real um, intention to facilitate the outsourcing of education into private hands through ed tech and other um, ways of privatizing our schools. And um, they believed that this was, a, was um, something that was happening already in terms of a school districts hiring companies to um, right. store the student data in the cloud, which in some ways may be more efficient and easy, but it also needs you know, considerable um, thought as to how that data is going to be protected from breach and abuse, which never happened. So both the, the, both the Obama administration and the Bush administration wanted to facilitate some things that were happening already and accelerate that trend towards outsourcing student data and allowing it to be used also um, for research and evaluation without any real strings attached. Wow. And the Gates Foundation was very influential mm -hmm. behind that push. Um, they had uh, funded all sorts of organizations, including the Data Quality Campaign, that was specifically set up to push for this expanded data collection. Right now, there's a push by the uh, Gates Foundation and certain elements in Congress to overturn the, the federal ban on, on collecting uh, private personal student data. Um, it's in the Higher Education Act, so that any student who goes to college will be tracked through life through their data, including data that is collected by many different federal agencies, including the IRS, Social Security, et cetera, et cetera, supposedly to help evaluate the success of colleges. But in and of itself, we believe that that, that uh, leads to government um, tracking and surveillance through life, which should not be allowed. None of us are really used to being supervised and tracked in the way that we are. Um, adults do it voluntarily by using credit cards and putting information on Facebook and whatnot. But kids are another story, and I think parents were very naive. I think this may have come as a surprise to them, it may have been the first time they were aware of a situation like this. No one ever thought of large-scale student information. And um, I've also heard that some of it was personally identifiable. What can you say about that? 
It's all personally identifiable. All of it. That's what we're talking about is personally identifiable data. We're not so concerned about aggregate data. We're talking about data that has the student's name, ID number, address, phone number, family, family relationships, um, all of that attached to this data. And all shared without parental notification or consent. Exactly. Wow. Well, I know that you founded the Parent Coalition for Student Privacy, and it's still active. Yes. Tell us about that. So after um, we helped, um, <coughs> excuse me, we helped um, ensure the collapse of InBloom, we realized that InBloom, of course, was not the only threat to student privacy, but was really the tip of the iceberg. And so we joined with many of the allies and advocates that we had worked with on defeating InBloom to create a national parent coalition um, that would be specifically devoted to strengthening both state and federal laws and district and teacher practices around data collection and sharing. And so um, we have been invited to testify before Congress twice since we formed in 2014. We put out a parent um, guide and handbook um, to protecting student data. We recently put out an educator handbook a toolkit to protecting student data, help train teachers, and give them um, guidance on how to um, more securely look at this issue and not to sign up for all sorts of apps which um, really are very insecure and, 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 and um, unsafe in many ways. And, and recently we came out with a, with a network for public education. We came out with a state report card which rates all the state's student privacy laws and gives them um, grades A to F. So all those things are on, um, all those reports and, and, and toolkits are on our website at Parent Coalition for Student Privacy, um, also Student Privacy Matters, that you can check out and download for free. And I highly recommend that people do that because they contain a lot of useful information, not just what federal laws include or do not include, what your state law right. includes and does not include, but also how you can advocate for stronger privacy practices at your school or district. Right, because we've all been very reactive, but we haven't been very proactive, so maybe it's time for a little change there. And we have included the link to that site in the description of the podcast, so I think that's a great idea. I'm going to take a deeper look into it. Um, tell us more about the legacy of the forced shutdown of In Bloom. You mentioned a few things. Tell us about the student privacy law. So um, more than um, 100 student privacy laws have been passed throughout the country. New York State passed a law in 2014 at the same time that InBloom was, was um, ruled illegal. Um, there were problems with that law, but um, there were lots of benefits to the law as well. And it actually got a grade of a B-plus in our state report card, which was one of the higher grades that we gave. Um, it banned the selling of student data and the use of student data for marketing purposes, which is one of the most important things that a state law can do. It also had some specific security protections that are important in terms of making sure that um, the data is not breached. It required the training of school staff 
in data privacy and security, and it created the position of a chief privacy officer who had certain responsibilities, including a cre uh, creating a parent bill of rights and putting out a report every year on breaches and in the investigation of, um, of parent complaints. Now, um, the problem with that law is though the, the deadline for implementation was July 2014. It has not yet been fully implemented now, five years later. <coughs> Excuse me. So um, as we speak, uh, the, uh, the state ed, five years later, has put out regulations and, and asked for comments on that law, and we expect that the regulations, um, either as proposed or hopefully um, revised, because of the, the comments that we put out and the New York Civil Liberties Union put out about problems with the regulations and a whole lot of things that they left out, um, will be adopted by the regions and hopefully there will be actual implementation and enforcement of that law in the near future. I like very much, uh, you mentioned that there was a handbook for teachers as well on the website. I like that focus very much because it's been difficult enough to draw um, this to parents' attention. I don't think teachers have thought of it at all, so I think that's a wonderful idea. Do you think that parents and school staff are more knowledgeable at this point? Are they more on the alert? I think they're more on the alert, but I think it, it, it's very hard for them to be more knowledgeable because it's actually a very complicated area. And, you know, we have gotten thousands of people to download our toolkits. Um, the uh, educator toolkit was partially funded by uh, the teachers' unions, which is helpful. So, so they have been um, somewhat helpful in getting it out there. Um, but we, as part of the Educator Toolkit, we did a national survey of teachers mm -hmm. as well, and we found that the vast majority, something like 80%, um, said they hadn't been sufficiently trained in even what the federal law required and what mm -hmm. good uh, privacy practices look like. And so we're hoping that both the unions and um, advocates will demand that there be better training of staff and um, teachers and others at the district level. The state law requires it, and we're hoping that the state education department actually requires that and, and, and follows up with enforcement, because right now nobody's doing that kind of work. Mm -hmm. And yet the topic is front and center on everybody's mind, so yeah. it's a matter of time. Hope, well, it's a matter of time and hopefully political priorities because you know teachers are already overstretched yes with testing and all yes, these other indeed. mandates that are put on them which the state education department unfortunately is is seems to put much higher priority on than our children's privacy so we really need the state education department and the regions to show that kind of focus on our kids mm. I'd like to turn our attention now to class size I really admire the job your organization, Class Size Matters, has done keeping this topic in front of policymakers. Um, the benefits of smaller classes for all students is a given, but there's so much competition for space here in New York City. I mean, we've always had charter schools and co-locations of specialized programs, but now we have the pre-K for all, we have 3K. It's a real estate-driven city. What solutions do you advocate for? 
Well, first of all, we haven't always had charter schools, and we haven't always had charter school co-locations in our mm. buildings. Co-locations really started with Mayor Bloomberg and Joe Klein in like 2003, 2004. And they also started creating a lot of new small schools, which took space away from the larger schools and caused more overcrowding in the large schools in many cases. Um, this mayor has put his focus on ex expanding pre-K and now 3K, which has caused additional pressures on our schools. And we came out with a report, Class Size Matters, in December, showing that the expansion of pre-K had caused worse overcrowding in over 300 elementary schools and worse conditions for almost a, a quarter of a million students in uh, grades K through 5. And now we're seeing the same thing happen with 3K. So the mayor has put such an overriding focus on 3K and pre-K that um, we are seeing worse conditions for our kids once they turn five. And we think that's very, very unfortunate because though the research on pre-K is pretty clear, there is a very large scale randomized study, which is the gold standard in research, which showed that kids in pre-K actually did know better when they reached uh, grade third, grade three, and actually were a little bit behind their peers who didn't have pre-K. And one of the um, hypotheses of the lead researchers was that there had been so little focus on what kind of education, the quality of education they were receiving once they hit kindergarten. And that's what I fear will happen with this pre-K um, and 3K expansion. Um, a number of years ago, more than 70 professors of psychology and early education sent a letter to then-Chancellor Farina saying, yes, expansion of pre-K is great, but you need to reduce class sizes as well in the early grades if you really want to see benefits from this program. And that letter was completely ignored and went unanswered. What is the solution? It's, it's a very tight city, literally. What is the solution? Well, it's a tight city, except that uh, that um, Mayor de Blasio spent a billion dollars on, on building pre-K centers, which he has found a lot of money and room for. And in the building of those pre-K centers, some of them are actually half empty and have drawn students from the CBOs that have been providing pre-K for years for New York City and for DOE, some of which now say that they're in risk of financial collapse because they've taken so many students out of their community-based centers into either the pre-K centers or into the elementary schools, mm -hmm. which are so badly overcrowded. So there are lots of ways that they could uh, actually use um, the pre-K centers for kindergarten, for example, and put more of the pre-K kids back into the CBOs where they belong in a certain sense, where, where they are very much needed for the vi economic viability for pre-K, and where they're not subjected to the overcrowded and chaotic conditions right. of our elementary schools, many of which have to serve lunch as early as 10 a.m. in the morning and have no room for physical activity, art, etc., well, so there are lots of ways you, he mm -hmm. could have implemented pre-K as so as not to create worse overcrowding and put more of an emphasis on creating more school space more quickly to relieve some of the overcrowding. Now, and there are many districts which are not overcrowded, and instead of, of reducing class sizes in those, in those districts, 
uh, this, this administration and the last administration have continued to co-locate new schools, including charter schools, which take up the room that we could be, could be used for smaller classes instead. They are also continuing to merge what they call under-enrolled schools and in the process increase their class sizes. So there are many things that they could do. Of course, we need a larger capital plan, and especially one that isn't backloaded, because the new five-year plan that the mayor has produced, um, which he brags has 57,000 seats, unfortunately 50,000 of those seats will not be built until 2024 or later, long after he's left office. So um, the, the mayor has put a lot of priority on building um, you know, re expanding mm -hmm. development, residential development, creating thousands and thousands of new apartments and creating, th you know, thousands and thousands of new pre-K and now 3K programs, both of which have caused school overcrowding to be, become worse rather than better. So maybe one strategy is to turn the focus to pay equity for the CBO teachers. I know that that's an issue too. They make quite a bit less than the Department of Education teachers. The result is they jump ship, move to the Department of Ed. It's led to classes closing, uh, businesses struggling financially. That would be a different pot of money. But do you think that would be successful in utilizing the CBOs to the max to take the pressure off the public schools? That would not solve the problem of overcrowding in the elementary schools. Wouldn't reduce it separate, at all? No. No. I, the, it, you would, I mean, I think that that's an a, important issue, but it's completely separate from the fact that the CBOs that have staff are starved for students. Starved for students. So their classes are not full. So they're, you know, they are, they are under-enrolled, and that's causing additional financial pressures. It has nothing to do with the salaries of the pre-K uh, teachers in those schools. Hmm. That was not my understanding, especially around the special education preschools, which is a whole different um, situation. But it is possible now that the Department of Ed takes a broader role for younger children, that they're going to look for ways to boost up the CBOs. They're good, they're good programs. They deserve it. There's space. And look, no matter how many difficulties this leads to, the pressures on kindergarten that you described if those younger kids could be encouraged to attend other programs off-site, you know, it seems like it would help a little bit. So, yeah, absolutely. We want more kids in the CBOs. We want, um, we want kindergarten classes in the pre-K centers. They used to be separate early childhood centers that the DOE had that offered smaller classes for kids in kindergarten and in their early grades. And now all that has been forgotten in the push to expand pre-K and 3K. Right. So the class sizes in our kindergartens has go have gone up. Um, the number of kids in kindergartens of 25 or more has increased by 50%. And the number of kids in classes of 30 or more in grades 1 through 3 has gone up 3,000% 3, since 2007. 3,000%. And this is simply unacceptable. And to, to imagine that the gains of pre-K are going to outstrip right. the losses <laughs> of, of edu uh, educating kids in classes that large is simply a huge misjudgment on the part of this mayor. What is an educational impact statement? So 
when the state legislature decided they were going to put additional requirements on um, closing schools and co-locating schools because of the huge parent and teacher and student outrage that all these proposals caused, instead of actually you know, making real efforts to um, amend mayoral control so there would be checks and balances on his ability to do that, they instead created a complicated public process um, that would require um, the DOE to put out an educational impact statement. There had to be hearings at the school and district level, and then there had to be a vote of the panel for educational policy. Despite all that, um, the these decisions have been rubber stamped nearly every single time, and there really has not been a change in these policies. The number of school closings or co-locations that have been actually turned down by the PEP are almost non-existent. Um, the educational impact statement um, are very flawed also. And recently we looked at one of the educational impact statements that had to do with merging two schools in District 16, which is one of these um, somewhat underutilized districts because uh, en enrollment had been going down in the district, both because of overall demographic trends and because of the supersaturation of charter schools in the district. And the uh, presentation um, that the school enrollment office um, district planning did showed that the merger would double the class sizes in the early grades. Um, and yet that was left out of the educational impact statement. And when I asked the Department of Education why they hadn't mentioned that in the educational impact statement, they said because that specific, specific impact on education was not specified in the state law. Hmm. And by the way, for whatever reason, the insertion of pre-K classes into elementary schools does not require any hearing, educational impact statement, or vote of the PEP. Interesting. For years now, education specialists have believed that you'd really need to improve general education in order to solve problems that are thought to be special education problems. For example, the large numbers of students that are referred for special education services. Could large class size contribute to the high referral rate for special ed? So we actually believe that that happens every single day because um, parents who demand that their kids either get special services inside the public schools or, or um, get funding so that they can enrollment enroll them in private schools, mm -hmm. their number one complaint is class size. And what I've heard from teachers is that it's basically impossible to serve kids' needs when class sizes are so as large as they are in New York City schools, including in the large number of inclusion classes and ICT classes, which though they may have two teachers in the classroom, are often so noisy and chaotic that it's very hard to get kids to focus on what they need to focus, especially kids with special needs. So some teachers have told us in ICT classes that they literally have to take kids into the closet to get them focused on the kinds of learning that needs to happen. It's a horror and story. So we've had a huge expansion of ICT classes yes. across the city, which have two teachers. 
but often those classes are 30 or more. And my view is, you know, and I'm not an expert in this area, but my view is that you could take those, if you could take those classes and cut them in half, they would be from, you know, in many cases, uh, 14 or 16 kids per mm -hmm. class, and that would benefit all the kids in that class, including the kids with IEPs so much more. And of course, all those teachers would need more training in um, special education, but that that's th the direction that we really should take if we want those kids to succeed. Right, and it'll reduce um, discipline problems. It'll it reduce, reduce teacher attrition. Yeah, all the things that we know smaller classes do, which is not just um, improve test scores and grades, it also, you know, radically reduces the number of disciplinary problems because kids are more engaged in learning mm -hmm. and more engaged in what they're supposed to be doing. And they will no longer feel that they need to act out to get the attention that they deserve. Um, teacher attrition is, is radically reduced in smaller classes. And it especially benefits the kids of highest need, whether they be kids with IEPs or kids from low-income families or kids uh, of color. Those are the kids, and, and English language learners, those are the kids that benefit the most from smaller classes, and they're also the kids, by and large, which make up the majority of kids in New York City public right. schools, which makes it the most unacceptable that New York City continues to have the highest class sizes in the state by far, by 10 to 30 percent, even though we also have the highest numbers of kids um, with, with the highest needs. That's true. Um, I'd like to close by focusing on bright spots. Where are they? I don't remember that we discussed bright spots. <laughs> there's Maybe always I was a bright in a spot. Mood before. There always a, there's always bright spots. There's always another ally to work with. Uh, yeah. Um, there's always something promising on the horizon. There's no so end of we, problems. You know, but we are we have a, a, a city council that is led by a speaker who in general is 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 pretty aware of the issues uh, regarding class size. Mm -hmm. um, the education committee is led by a former teacher and the finance committee is led by a former teacher both of whom are aware of the problems of large class sizes in New York City schools and our organization is going to be strongly advocating that there be a separate light I'm a line item in the budget, in the city budget, um, specifically devoted to reducing class size in the public schools. We're going to be pushing for $200 million um, that would allow for the hiring of 2,000 teachers, which could lower class size in as much as 8,000 classes across the city. So we're hoping that that happens, and we're hoping that um, we move forward in doing the things that we know very well um, are necessary for our kids to be able to receive a quality education. We will keep our eye on that, and I would just like to suggest anybody interested in following up more should subscribe to Chalkbeat, a digital newsletter. Includes Navigator is excellent, too. It's a wonderful roundup of special education and disability news. I want to say farewell for now. Thank you very much for joining us. See you next time.